Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. <laughs> Welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. Here's your host, Tom Bourne. Hi, and welcome to Health and Safety Conversations. I'm your host, Tom Bourne, and with me today is the awesome Andy Baker. Andy, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, fantastic. I love this time of day. It's just the quiet time of day. You can see the stars and that. Ah, oh, Andy, it's it's nice to get someone of your caliber on the show. It really is. Um, as I said when I recorded Bob, I would go anywhere, anytime to get good people on the show. So thank you very much for coming on. But for those who have lived under a rock for a while or in a cave, or as we did with COVID, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your professional background, and how you came to be involved in safety? Sure, I'd be happy to. I actually, I don't know that I got involved in safety on purpose. I think that's actually a path that many of us that are in the safety space would say is true. So I went to school for engineering and then I did an internship and on paper, man, environmental health and safety on paper, you really, it sounds like you're saving the world. And I was very interested in using any, any knowledge that I could possibly have, any time that I could have, any resourcing I could have to to help folks. And so I, I went into an internship in environmental health and safety at a large company. And then very soon after that thought, well, maybe it's not exactly what I think it is. Maybe uh, there's a lot more bureaucracy involved than I thought. Maybe I don't want to do this, but I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I, I stayed in safety for about 10 years with the organization. And I learned a lot along the way, learned a lot about the things that I love in the space, learned a lot about the things that I don't love in this space. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was a fascinating, fascinating beginning to, to my career. Yeah. How's that saving the world going? Well, I, I like to think that some of what I get to do now is aligned with 
something that will be incredibly helpful for people. I don't know. That could just be fallacy in my, my own thought process though. That's why I, I forced Matt who I brought with me here. So Matt Florio to, to come be a second set of eyes to make sure that I'm never fooling myself as to whether or not we are making change or helping people to make sure that I'm not in my own echo chamber. So Matt, you want to tell them where you came from? Cause it was, it no, was not safety, very different. <laughs> not safety at all. Very and it's a hard job to keep an eye on you. So my background <laughs> was wildly different. I actually came from the startup software world where I was on the revenue side for a long time. Prior to that, I was a, a teacher and I went to school to be a teacher. All this different training I've had has led me into what we do today. So while I was work as a VP, I was constantly having some questions as to what the best way to navigate um, some of the complicated situations you find yourself in in the startup world. And I would call Andy and we would talk through kind of best approach, best strategy, how we can do things with people and not for them or to them. And in that conversation, we realized how much of this hop stuff that Andy has taught for a long time was sort of cross applicable. And she ripped me out of my comfort zone and my, my world that I was into help teach this stuff and get the word across and try to have a different perspective outside of just safety, because what we find is this, this stuff really can be applicable throughout the whole organization as, as more of a culture change than just sort of a way we change, you know, safety observations or safety approach. Yeah. All right. For those who, again, don't know much about HOP, what does it stand for? And uh, what does a HOP practitioner actually do? (laughs) It's <laughs> a great question. So the standing for it is easy. So human and organizational performance is what it stands for. What a practitioner does, that's the piece where it becomes a fairly long answer, but I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to make it fairly succinct. Um, human and organizational performance takes thought processes that would live in the space of complexity science, mm-hmm. behavioral psychology, and systems thinking or systems design. And it takes knowledge from those spaces and then applies it to organizations and how how that's run. So there's a lot of different applicability in the thought process, depending upon what place in an organization. you. But yeah, it's learning from, from people, from sectors of our world that we generally don't use their mental models in organizations. And it's applying that thought process to how we get work done. Mm. Is there any sort of formal qualifications you need to go into that? Go into it how? What do you mean, Tom? To actually teach human organizational performance, is there any qualifications required for that? I mean, I think in in general, in order to teach it well, you you have to have used it. I think that's what I would consider the the qualifications personally. So there's certainly a body of knowledge that you have to be very familiar with. And there's a few universities that are moving in the direction of being able to formally provide that body of knowledge. But then I, I mean, I think it's really, really hard to teach it unless you are actually a practitioner, meaning that you use the subjects, you use them in work, you use them in your personal life. Because if not, it's hard to answer questions around it. It's hard to be able to see somebody else's perspective, help them apply this hop lens to it and kind of pull them into a different place in thought unless you've had to go through it yourself. And a lot of the examples that we use that are not even work-related, let alone safety-related, we try to make it about 
what it's like to be human in a lot of ways and not just related to everyday sort of safety practice. Okay. Okay. Would ergonomics cover some of the area of human organizational performance? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I would say if we're talking about like the systems thinking space, there's lots of pieces that, you know, have lived in the safety world for a while. So ergonomics, human factors, that is all, yeah, absolutely part of the thought process. I think that the difference in human and organizational performance versus maybe what I historically had been taught in the past is just the, the ability to help an organization think differently enough to be able to use those really good practices. So in my mind, HOP kind of falls into three large categories. The first is this ability to think differently. So kind of changing our the way that we are seeing the world and, and borrowing from those bodies of knowledge that we were talking about in order to think differently. And then we want to learn differently. And then we want to design differently. And some of that pieces of designing differently fall squarely into practices that people have been doing for a long time and, and trying to have other people see like in the ergonomic space and the human factor space of like, hey, we, we need to design it this way. And I think HOP just gives a little bit of runway to help get buy-in where maybe we've had a hard time getting buy-in in the past. Okay. Before you, before you learned about HOP, um, you were, you were in a safety leader how mm -hmm. frust how frustrating was that did you did you feel like always there was something missing well, i think that's when i mentioned that there are things that i learned that i loved about this space and things that i learned that i didn't love about the space is yeah as a safety leader i i often found that i was i was being asked to do things that didn't align with what i thought the right thing to do was right which is similar to matt's reality of you know when he was in charge of this merger of what I, what the expectations, the requirements of the organization that I'm in, the past practice of what we've done before, sometimes even expectations from regulatory bodies didn't always align with what seemed like the right thing to do. So just simple example, right? I, you know, historically was told that I needed to ban pocket knives or I needed to ban box cutters. And you look at that and, you, you know, on the surface, if you're thinking about it in a vacuum, sure, that makes sense, right? We've got a, we've got a risk, we've got a hazard, we're going to remove the hazard. And, but then when you look at it from the employee's perspective of, you know, well, what are we giving in place of that? Is that actually a, a true replacement for that tool? And what else are we expecting folks to do, right? In the risk profile of what it means to be a human, how high on this list is a box cutter, something that we all use in our personal lives, something that you, you know, you, you can teach someone who's fairly young how to use it well. And yet in a work environment where we trust people sometimes with, you know, thousands of volts and, you know, we trust people to do incredibly dangerous tasks that that could kill them. And yet my job was to take away a tool that didn't seem to fall into those categories. It felt almost like I was asked to treat our employees like children. Mm. And that bothered me. It bothered me, but it was super normalized. Um, and, and it was normalized with, with good intent, right? There was nothing negative about the intent of, hey, we want to make sure that people don't have serious cuts. And but there was always this undertone of an attempt to, to control, an attempt to try to kind of make people act a little bit more like robots than humans, and a bit of a sort of a parent-child relationship between, you know, what my role was and what I was being asked, how I was being asked to treat the people that, that worked in operations, where I was sort of pushed into this parent role. And 
that ego position then pushed the people who I was talking to into this, this child ego position. And it just wasn't, it wasn't, didn't feel like a healthy dynamic. And I think that was one of the things fairly early on in working in the safety space that made me uncomfortable, but I didn't know that there was an alternative. I don't think I had enough life experience to know that I could be doing something more than that. Do you think that that traditional uh, parent-child relationship of management to worker is based on the belief that by management that they know best? I think that that has been a thought process that was sort of baked into how industry was created. I don't think that managers come into an organization and say, I know better. I think that we're taught that that's the way we're supposed to lead in some organizations. Not every place, right? And actually teaching this around the world is that not every country has a sort of strong parent-child relationship. But I mean, I remember very distinctly coming into the work environment and not having that belief system, meaning I didn't come in and think that my role was to tell people what to do, to do things to people, to, you know, coach and just explain and say, I'm sorry that you don't like it, but this is what you have to do. That wasn't a very natural thought process to me. My thought process was, well, these folks are experts in what they're doing. I should be enabling. I should be working with them. We should be solving problems together. And in some places in the organization that I worked in, that was very much the thought process of what we should be doing. But in other places, depending upon the leader that I worked for, they had been taught to lead very differently. And that style was more about um, control, command and control, trying to sort of force people into specific behaviors and doing that through a parent-child lens of, you know, coaching conversations, but then disciplinary action if you don't follow it. And it always just felt, it felt like we were spending, all of us were like using an, an, an enormous amount of energy and it didn't feel like we were getting anywhere. I always felt like I was running in molasses, right? How many times can I tell people that they need to wear safety glasses, you know, and then and then I'm the safety glass cop and yet we're still not wearing safety glasses and then we're disciplining people for it. And then we write people up and then we suspend somebody for it. And then people wear safety glasses for a little bit. And then it goes back to how it was before. It just felt like there's so much more benefit we could be using that time and energy for. Yeah. And that's, that's how I felt early on in my safety career until really understanding this hop space, this HOP space. And uh, suddenly, suddenly I had different solution sets, right? I had different ways that I could handle something that you know, I didn't even know existed at the beginning of my career. I think it's hard for some managers, some people involved in safety to let go of behaviorism as they tend to cling to it like a little blankie or something. And they don't, just don't want to let it go to embrace new ideas. I mean, I think all of us hold on to that concept, even in our personal lives, right? We we oversimplify why people are behaving the way they behave. We have, you know, biases like fundamental attribution error that, you know, we don't recognize somebody else's context when we judge them. And, and so it's, it's, it's part of humanity, I think, is to lean towards a general wish to control things. And I think that it, it requires a lot of active thought, sort of frontal lobe thought in order to counteract that desire. I don't know if everyone's wired that way, but I think in general, we all like a little bit of control and sometimes trying to adjust somebody else's behavior feels like the best way of doing that without really understanding the full picture. But like something as simple as, I think we all we all get sucked into something like fundamental attribution error. This simple example is like, if you're, if you're driving and somebody cuts you off, right? It's, it, most of us, our first thought process isn't something nice about that person, right? Like we usually color 
color our thoughts around that person is, you know, they're not a great driver, maybe something much more colorful than that crosses your crosses your mind. Um, and yet when, when we think about it, we've all cut somebody off before while driving and we don't have those same thoughts about ourselves. Well, most of us don't think that that makes us terrible drivers. And that's just because we contextually understood why there was logic to do it, right? We understood our own local rationale. And so it's completely logical to us. Like maybe I was, you know, trying to get over into the lane and I've been trying to do that for a while. And, you know, I was even had my signal on and this person next to me didn't see and they're, I have to get off the, you know, the road, I have to take an exit. And so I just sort of try to politely put my car in front of them. And there's really no polite way of doing that. I, there's no polite horn that says I'm doing this because I'm sorry. Like there, that doesn't exist right now. And so the person's interpretation of my behavior and the reasons behind my behavior feel very different. So yeah, I don't think it's specifically a leadership issue or a, I think it's just, we all to some extent would like to control the behavior around us. And we get frustrated when we can't, you see it in personal relationships here. You see it in friendships, you see it in business relationships, kind of see it everywhere. You mentioned it takes a lot of like frontal lobe effort, right? I mean, we make tens of thousands of little biases, little judgments every day. It's just how we operate as humans. So when you try to break that, it really takes a conscious effort and a lot of thought to sit down and, and be curious. We have, we have one quote on our wall and it just says, be curious, not judgmental, which is honestly a, a major takeaway we try to give in, in any time we're talking about this stuff. Hmm. Do you find it hard to enlighten some people about approaching things differently? I think each person has a some life experience that either makes the thought process in hop concepts kind of intuitively make sense to them. And other people have had life experience where it feels counter to everything that they've seen or known. And so it's it's more difficult. And it seems to be dependent upon, you know, it's sometimes it's dependent upon the the country that you grew up in and the family structure, the family dynamic that you grew up in, whether or not if if the if what you see around you and your entire life fell into categories like like command and control of, you know, I'm going to sort of try to do do actions for behavioral modification. And that's how you saw problems solved. Then this thought process on the surface not only feels foreign, but it tends to come across as fluffy. Right. It tends to come across as this sort of strange utopian view of the, of the world. Um, and then if you have grown up and you have seen models yourself that don't involve command and control, you actually see you see a different reality. You see sort of a, a realism about about what it means to be human. You see a realism about when you do try to punish your way to excellence, what is that? What is actually happening? Are you punishing your way to excellence, right? Are we, are we behavior modifying our way to excellence or are people just kind of pretending a little bit in front of authority figures? Have we truthfully changed something? Have we changed the probability of injury or are we just playing theater? And that once you pull back the curtain, you see that there's something very different happening behind the scenes. So I don't know that individuals are harder to, and I don't even know if I'd use the word enlightened. I think that's probably, you know, that's, that's probably giving the thought process too much credit. I think 
But I think that I think there are people that that have never seen a model like this work. And so until you show them that not only does it work, but it works really, really well. And it allows people to be candid and allows people to be real. And you get to tackle real problems that have a, a very large dependency on whether or not you're going to be successful. Meaning like, are you going to have more safety related events or more quality related events or operational upsets? And when you can see how real it is and how candid the conversation is, then it starts to make sense. Yeah. So, so your question, Tom, Yes. What's the yes? <laughs> sometimes it's easier for people to they hear and they just think this is how I've operated forever. And sometimes it's a bit of a additional learning and, and understanding. Yeah. And where what, what, one. what what category would you fall into that? Uh, was it it was it was it was split for yeah. sure. I mean, some things really made a lot of sense. I mean, trying to ask questions without judgment. It was, I would say to start, it was a toss up when I thought about how I had been in my career. Mm -hmm. There were times when it was very easy, when things were going well, and I was just going to ask questions about how we were doing. But as a leader, when things are not going well, it is very hard to leave your judgment aside and be curious. You are always conditioned as a leader to think you need to solve a problem and solve it quickly. So that's where it can be really hard to ask the questions you need to ask without judgment to understand the scope of the problem and work with the people to solve it. So that was, it was, it was a split. I don't think it's always absolute values of this always is easy for someone or it's hard for someone. It's, it's just understanding where you are quickly and easily ready to adopt it and where you might struggle and then challenging yourself in those areas. The more pressure we're under as an individual or as a leader, oftentimes the more we lean towards tr trying to use command and control as a quick fix to, to address something. Yeah, absolutely. I'm being curious, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing, but it re would require you actually to leave your office and actually, you know, go and observe people and talk to them, wouldn't it? I mean, I know some managers who just go, oh, I don't have the time for that. And it's just like... We're trying to find out why people do things. That's the real push that we're we're doing here. We're trying to find out why people do certain things, certain ways, in order to better protect them. Is that is that, is that about the crux of it? Yeah. So our our goal is to first in this space think differently enough to realize that some of the actions that we've taken in the past. Um, aren't bringing us the value that we thought they were. Meaning like if if my solution set to an issue is to hold a sort of like a safety stand down and tell people to do it better the next time and this is what you should be afraid of and this is the risk that exists and that's really how I'm thinking I'm going to address the problem. Being able to see what actually happens when you say those words? Like how are people processing that information and understanding enough about behavioral psychology to then be able to see whether that has true value or not from a different light. So that's kind of the first step. What actions have we taken in the past that maybe you know we meant well by them, but maybe they aren't doing the things that we thought they were doing. Maybe this behavioral modification piece isn't working the way that we thought it was working. That then actually frees you up wise to start wanting to do something different. So not only am I recognizing that oh, that solution set probably isn't going to make sense because it's not going to help, 
But now if I can walk away from using that as a solution set, I have that same time and energy and resources to do something different. So the doing something different, you're right, requires us to go learn, which often means that we have to go to, we have we have to go in the field or we certainly have to talk to people, right? We have to have conversation and that takes time and energy. So if we're still doing the things that aren't bringing value and taking that time and energy is going to be really hard. But if we can let go of some of the things that we can clearly look each other in the eyes and be like, okay, this was theater. This isn't really doing what we want it to do. We can let go of this in order to free up some of our time to do something that we do think is going to bring value. That's when organizations start to make a shift to wanting to operationally learn. And not everyone, Tom, not everyone wants to, but honestly, that's okay, right? I, in an ideal sort of going back to this wish of utopia, sure, we'd say like every leader should be always in the field and talking to people, but realistically, that's not going to happen. So let's at least take the folks who are passionate about doing it and let's make sure that they have a voice to be an advocate for those that are close to the work. So let's take the people who do want to be in the field and let's make sure that they're comfortable with the skill set of having that conversation and that they have a place to bring those stories to. So the person who either can't be in the field because they don't have enough time or that they're part of their, their role in the business would not ever afford them the time to be there. Let's at least bring those stories to that person when whether or not they're sitting in their office at the time those stories are brought to them, that that's up to them. Yeah. What would be the most crucial level in an organization to support hot principles, would it be senior management or frontline supervisor or, or, or the workers actually doing the job? That's a good question. And I think there's pros and cons to all of it. When you have very, very senior leaders that really like this, um, it's great because they can free up resourcing. But there also tends to be, depending upon the leader, because they maybe are in, our, in a CEO capacity, their thought process on how they get the organization to make a shift to using HOP often comes from a place of command and control. So the CEO will say, we are going to be a learning organization. We are going to use HOP principles, which on one hand feels lovely, but on the other hand, lovely if that's the direction you want to go. But on the other hand, it often, it breeds an environment where people get really good at using the language mm -hmm. because they know that their leadership wants to hear. Yeah. So they mimic really well, but it doesn't mean that thought process has changed. You can't force anyone to think differently. You can only invite them to hear stories and see whether or not it makes sense to them. And so CEOs that know this can do an incredible job in changing the culture, but CEOs that just try to demand because it makes sense to them that this is the direction they go, they don't give their folks the grace to argue, right? They don't give their folks the, the space to figure out whether or not they agree. They just request strongly that their people agree. So helpful in one sense, but depending upon how it's handled, it can actually be incredibly painful in the journey because you, you you don't even know if people agree or not. They just know that they're supposed to, right? So you, you can't quite get to the layer below of what people are thinking. And then middle management, honestly, fantastic, right? If, if supervisors and middle management and, and leaders that are, are closer to the work, when they buy in, they can make really fast changes because they have, you know, a subsection of people that are working with them. Um, but sometimes it's really hard to make system level changes that are making it difficult, right? For example, if you've got a corporate requirement for a certain form you have to use for an audit or a certain, you know, set of steps you have to follow after an investigation and the folks that are in middle management don't have the sphere of control to change that, well, then they're always working against it, right? So that becomes exhausting. And so people sometimes lose the energy to want to 
do it because they're just exhausted by fighting against the barriers in their own organization and they can't change it. And then I'd say that the folks close to the work, when I started teaching this, I used to teach, you know, the front line, like, you know, the, the folks, the operators, the, the folks that are executing the work, I used to teach them the subjects. And honestly, every single time, didn't matter what country I was in, didn't matter what, what slice of, you know, industry I was in, they'd look at me and they'd be like, yeah, Andy, yeah, you're telling us the sky's blue. Like, we know, like, we, this is what we've been saying for a long time. So could you go talk to our leaders instead of hanging out here because there's nothing that you're telling us that we don't already know so i would say in most places not all but in most places the the operators they're already bought in so yeah. so that's yeah yeah that's good that's good being just going back to being curious to be curious does that also require being being curious require being humble i think being curious requires believing that you have something to be taught whether or not you want to label that as being humble or not. I know that Bob Edwards and I talk about this quite a bit. I'm not sure if you talked about it on, on his podcast, but he doesn't love the term humble. And I, I think originally I was leaning towards humble more because I really do like Edgar Schein's work in the space, Dr. Edgar Schein's, and he, he talks about humble leadership and humble inquiry. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. But, you know, to, to Bob's point, Humble is, that's a, that's a really sometimes high bar to get to. And it's not often a, it's not often a characteristic that you find in many leaders. And so to say, to do this, you need to be humble. It sort of starts to down select who could, who can do it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe even like self limit the thought process of who could, who could do this. And I think that although many of us don't know how to be humble in its truest sense, I think most of us can wrap our head around the idea that somebody else has something to offer that I don't already know. So being teachable feels far more attainable and probably more realistic. Yeah. I think it's, I probably say it requires self-awareness. Hmm. I don't know if it requires you to be humble. That's a really high bar and great if you can get there, but it requires some level of self-awareness to realize that someone has something to teach you. Yeah. And yeah. that also requires making sure that we're not operating within a parent-child dynamic. So if the way that we are relating to each other is in a parent and child ego position, then actually, if you're in the parent role, you, you truly don't believe that that folks have information to offer you if they're in the child ego position, actually. So we just, we're just using habit loops based on, you know, our understanding of parent-child relationships. And so 
if you're in a parent position, you listen to your child, but you, you don't think they're going to bring knowledge to you about how the world works that you don't already know because they just don't have as much experience. So in that type of dynamic, it's actually really hard to even, it doesn't even really cross your mind that you should be teachable. And so by recognizing that that dynamic isn't incredibly helpful in an organization, we want to relate to each other as adults, adult-adult interactions it's, it's much easier. Oh, this is a fully functioning human adult standing next to me that does something different than I do every day. And my decisions affect this person's life and their decisions affect my life. So maybe we should be having a different type of conversation in which we are passing real information to each other. It's a lot easier to be teachable in an adult adult dynamic than it is the other way around. Yeah. I, I, I remember back to 2002, my first First day as a frontline leader and had the most experienced crew in this site to, that I was in charge of. And I remember saying to them at the start of the day, listen, you know, I'm happy to do things the way we are. But if, you know, you guys have got a lot more experience than me. If there's a better way, come and talk to me and we'll try. And I very quickly got pulled aside by one of the older workers and said, what sort of management mumbo jumbo is this? What sort of trick are you trying to do with us? And it's just like, just being honest. I don't know everything. And perhaps you know more than me. So, you know, I think it's, a, I, think, I, I honestly think humbleness is good. Respect, mutual respect is probably better, to be honest. Yeah, I think mutual respect is, you can see how often it's lacking when you get a response like the way you did, right? So when you, when you, when you actually talk to folks and you're like, Hey, I'm not sure I know the answer to this. And can you teach me what you know? And their response is shocked to the point of feeling like they're being tricked. That's when you know that we've been operating in a dynamic that hasn't been two-way communication for quite a long time. Which is, which is why when working with companies that we're not you know, at the tippy top of leadership and we're doing a, maybe a, a baseline foundations, fundamentals training, we always get stopped halfway through and they go, Hey, do our bosses know you're here? Do they know you're talking about this stuff? <laughs> Cause they're, they're unfortunately in some companies they are just used to not having that level of respect. And it's, it's challenging. Yeah. All right. Are you a fan of learning teams? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, learning teams were, yeah. they were something that there wasn't a lot of practical application for the concepts of hop when, when I learned them. And so we, I started to just kind of adjust how we were having conversation originally post event after we had an incident, because I didn't feel like our incident investigations aligned with, with any of the hop concepts, to be honest with you. I couldn't, I couldn't find one, one thing that we were doing that I felt like really, truly aligned with the way that, you know, the hop folks see the world. So I started to just kind of adjust how they looked. And then, um, Bob and I met each other. We were working in different parts of the business and he had been doing the same thing and working with Todd. And suddenly I realized that there's some sort of name that was associated with doing something differently in this space. And it was called a learning team. And so we started sharing notes as well. What does a learning team mean to you? And what does a learning team mean to you? And realized that there were a lot of commonalities when we were getting great results, what it looked like. And so, yeah, this idea of a learning team, it's fascinating to me because I think Folks that hear about it now, they tend to they tend to feel it has a lot of rules and a lot of structure and a lot of requirements and, and it can feel overwhelming. And 
I remember when we first started, Bob and I were teaching our own organization at first, what a, what a learning team was, like how to use them. And the, the name was not known anywhere, right? It wasn't like, it wasn't a, a, a thing that people were doing everywhere. And we didn't even really know how to teach how to do it yet. Cause it kind of just felt like, I don't know, you know, just, you just ask, you're just curious. Like you just ask, you talk to people, you don't separate them out and you're curious about what's going on and, and people tell you things. And then those are the things that you fix. Like that's as much as we knew how to describe what we were doing. Um, and then people would ask for a little bit of structure. So then we'd give structure. And then when we started teaching outside of our organization, you'd give a tiny bit of structure to an organization and they'd create a lot of structure out of it because that's what we like to do, right? So here's the rules, here's what you need to do. They turn it into sort of this formal program. And so I guess if you ask if I'm a fan of learning teams, the answer is absolutely yes. That is like the first thing that I started to change in my own world. But I would say I'm, I'm even a bigger fan of operational learning. Operational learning is the concept behind what a learning team is. I think learning teams have gotten a life of their own and that's great. And each organization does them a little bit differently and that's great. But if it feels overwhelming and like this huge structure, that's the piece that gets us into this bureaucratic nightmare that we're all trying to detangle ourselves from. Operational learning is just the idea of, hey, I'm going to go learn directly from the folks doing the work. And in doing that, I'm going to give space to learn and I'm going to be teachable. I'm going to create an environment where people can be candid with me and we're going to focus on just learning. And then later we're going to come back together after we've had a minute to kind of breathe and we're going to see if there's anything else we need to learn. And then, you know, we'll try to define the things that we need to work on and then we're going to work on them together. And if we get stuck, we're going to ask other people for help because we've defined what the issues are and we might not have all the answers in this room, but for sure we can do something. That's what operational learning is. And I'm an even bigger fan of that, I guess, than the structure that has been wrapped around this notion of a learning team. Okay, good, good, good. Operational learning. Is it possible where there is no trust between management and workers? Sure. Yeah. Yes. But okay. caveat, right? So it depends upon how you're labeling what that trust looks like. Meaning, is there a trust break between all leadership and all employees? Because I would tell you that many of the places that I worked in, there was almost zero trust between the leadership team and the folks doing the work so much. So I'll tell you a, a quick, true little anecdote about my world. I started working at a new place and I was the environmental health and safety leader for this area in a plant. And I walked in and a supervisor came over to me of the area and said, Hey, heard you just starting. My name is so-and-so. I just want you to know, you see over there, those two guys that they, they work on the forklifts over there. I want you to know they're going to lie to you. They're going to make things up. If you have any issue, you come and you talk to me. And I just said, okay, thank you. And then I walked a little bit further on, right? And the, the two people he was pointing to, they came up to me and they said, hey, I heard you're starting to work here. What I want you to know, you see that supervisor over there that you were just talking to? He's going to lie to you. He's going to make things up. If you need anything, you come to me. You come to us. We'll take care of you. So I'm going to say like, that's, I, I don't know... <laughs> any other way of like, like that was the first thing that they said. So if you're talking about a place that didn't have any trust, that's a place that didn't have any trust. Now that supervisor is probably not somebody who can operationally learn, but that doesn't mean you can't have somebody in the organization go into a place that has no trust and start to build that bridge back up. And that's what operational learning does. It's actually, it is incredibly helpful to use in places where there isn't any trust because it becomes the stepping stone to allow 
trust to happen in the future. In operational learning, you provide a space very specifically, like a, a moment in time where people can be candid with each other. And it's a moment in time that you have to be careful who's in the conversation, where you're actually having the conversation, how you start the conversation, the questions that you choose to ask, how you respond to information. There's a lot of work that goes into creating that space where people can be candid. But when you start to do that over and over and over again, that's when trust starts to form. And when you can start to bring in some of the leadership team that didn't have this relationship before that you can build it, but you have to have a place to build it. You have to have a reason to build it and it has to start somewhere. And so you can't have a candid conversation without some trust being created, but you can certainly bring a candid conversation into a place where trust is lacking. I think if I would layer on when I first learned about these conditions for candor to have an honest conversation, I thought of them as being continuous, like it, it existed forever. Once you create the conditions that they're around, and it's actually quite different. You're you're focused on creating the conditions in a moment in time, recognizing that it's temporary. And then if you meet again, you have to create those conditions again. They're not inherently there. That was a real big shift in my mindset when understanding what that looks like. Yeah. Did operational learning and curiosity, is it best engaged on a day-to-day -day basis before incidents happen or immediately after incidents, negative outcomes, whatever you want to call them, happen? Hmm. I guess it depends upon what the word best means. I think there, when an, when an organization is first starting off to try to use these concepts, we have to balance the fact that when we learn something in an organization, it's going to take energy and effort and resourcing to make it a change. And so oftentimes when you're starting off as an organization, there isn't a lot of buy-in to fix something that we don't deem is already a problem. And so post-event becomes an important place to be able to learn because there's already some amount of momentum to make some type of change because we've had something bad happen. But there's another side to that coin. Like if you do, if you start off in a place and it's post-event, and it happened to be a very serious event, well, now you have a lot of emotions. And so the emotional piece of it, the ability to facilitate that conversation becomes incredibly hard. The ability to make sure that those that are involved tangentially in the operational learning, that they understand the point of the learning team and that they're going to be responding with respect and not through a parent-child lens when they hear things, that also becomes harder because we're under stress and we have emotions running high. So it's really helpful to start post-event, but something small, right? Maybe a, maybe a near miss or maybe like a low-level injury or a low-level operational upset. There's already a desire to make a change, but we don't have an aggressive amount of either extra helping hands or extra eyes or extra emotion swirling around it. If we want to think long-term and we use the word best of like what's going to help us make very significant change to how we're doing operations and to help us maybe steer away from catastrophic results, well, then for sure, we want to be doing things proactively. When when you start talking about that, though, with people that operational learning is new to them, the idea of learning proactively feels overwhelming. And because it feels like you just need to be learning about everything all the time, and we're already, we're already resource tight. So how, how in the heck am I supposed to do that? How am I supposed to learn everywhere all the time proactively? I don't even know like what that means. And I don't have enough time to do it, right? So that's the that's the response that people generally have. 
And so you almost have to prove it to yourself post events that it's worth putting the time and energy. And then the goal after that is to find places proactively, things you're already doing, like you already have to be out there for some type of observation or some audit or some pre-job brief or some, some something. So let's use that time. Let's strip away the stuff from whatever that interaction was that we now say, huh, maybe that wasn't getting the results we thought we should be getting. Let's strip away those pieces of it. And instead let's add in some really great operational learning type discussions where we can learn what's actually happening from the perspective of the folks that are close to the work. Yeah. Let me, let me, preface this by saying I'm a, I've always been a, a big fan of actually asking the opinion of people who do the job how it should be best done and how to manage the hazards and risks involved. I've always been that. But do you find that getting people involved at the sharp edge, the front line, that perhaps they may not know all of the regulatory conditions or technical issues around perhaps how a safe operating procedure was developed in the first place and so that we're looking at the practical side and the practical implementation but perhaps they're not seeing the whole or the big picture as well absolutely in the same way that you know those of us that are in the regulatory space or those of us that are are you know, running a large piece of an operation, we can't see the nitty gritty details of what it takes to get that job done. And I think that that becomes incredibly important for us to recognize, because in some places, this idea that you, you know, you run a learning team or you run operational learning, you know, and then, and then the folks close to the work, just, they say, this is what we should do. We're going to do this differently. And, and we should just go in this direction. And then they folks can become incredibly frustrated because the ideas of the people that were close to the work didn't take into account some sort of constraint that existed somewhere else that they wouldn't know. There would be no reason for them to have that information. And so this idea of, and I think Bob probably says this quite well, he says that, you know, historically we used to do things to the worker and then we started to try to do things for the worker and this is doing things with the worker. A really important part of operational learning is to define the problems that we're seeing. And in defining the problems that we're seeing, that allows us to get other people's perspective around those problems. You don't have to go through the entire learning piece of it with everyone, because that would be impractical in an organization, right? To have every person that had every constraint and every piece of knowledge to be part of like a learning team, or we're talking about hundreds, thousands of people that, that probably wouldn't work well. But when we operationally learn from a perspective and we can define a problem, or we can define brittleness. Well, now we have something to rally around. This is a problem that is a difficulty that those that are close to the work are seeing that we didn't know about, or we haven't addressed. Now we can bring in lots of people's perspectives to help round out the knowledge that would be needed in order to develop a solution set. But that solution set shouldn't happen squirreled away in somebody's office, right? Because in the same way that the person who understands the regulatory can doesn't see the nitty gritty of the work, right? If I'm just focusing on regulatory constraints and, and what I know knowledge wise to address that problem, I'm going to miss a bigger picture. So, but you might need me in order to, to help you know what that information is. And we should probably be working together to solve this problem, not any one of us alone. This pendulum swing piece is, is something that we want to be cognizant of and trying to correct. It's not one or the other, it's and. 
and it's necessary and for us to be working together. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Just taking it back to your box cutter example, do you think people, maybe safety professionals, spend an awful lot of time and energy focusing on the things that may cause minor injuries and starting to look at the big picture, the things that are going to kill people or maim people for life? I mean, I, I think that we were taught to look at severity and frequency. And we were taught that both of those were important. And so I think that the the difficulty is that in many organizations, the idea of what is an acceptable amount of risk has been defined by a regulatory body that we don't have a lot of control over. And it's defined by a metric on a piece of paper somewhere. And it's not necessarily defined by what would be logical in an organization or realistic, right? So the idea that you can get a cut and that cut becomes a number, right? Because maybe it got infected and now it's going to be, you know, recordable and it becomes a number that becomes incredibly important somewhere. Well, that drives a lot of, it drives a lot of action, right? That And sometimes great action and sometimes action that's just action to do something different, right? Sometimes action that's just a waste of resourcing. And so I think if we can start to think about including regulatory bodies, right? Because I recognize we have to move in this together. But when we start to think about types of events that have built in biological mitigation and we spend a little bit less time, meaning like if I get a cut, the amazing thing about the human body is that maybe with a little bit of medical intervention, my I'm going to heal, which is great. So there's a built-in mitigation to that cut. Do we want everyone to get cut? No, but if I'm going to spend a lot of my resources focused on something that has built in mitigation. Honestly, for me as an individual, I want to spend that time on something that doesn't have built in mitigation. I want to spend that time on something that if this series of ingredients come together in the same time and same place, that's going to not have an arm anymore. Somebody's not going to have a lot or somebody's not going to go home at all. Or we're going to have even on the non-safety space, right? We're going to have such an operational upset, or we're going to have such a, a misdirection of funds somewhere that a bunch of people are going to lose their jobs. I want to be able to focus on the things that that are brittle and brittle with enormous consequence. And in order to do that, though, we have to we have to be willing to think about the places that are already quite well designed, even if it wasn't our design and the organization that made it, right? Like, even if it just happens to be the, hey, that's how the, the human body works. That's amazing. That's great. We, we can fix that. We know how to fix that. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, good, good. All right, just going to ask you a couple of questions because we're running, we're running low on time because obviously I just talk too much. All right, <laughs> all right. Who's been your biggest influence on your career? Besides, besides, besides Matt. <laughs> Biggest influence on my career, I'd, I'd have to say that it was probably Dr. Todd Conklin, for sure. Um, yeah, he and, and Bob Edwards came into one of the locations I was working at and gave a presentation. And I don't know if Bob's, Bob's probably told this story publicly before, but I didn't want to go to the presentation. It just came up on my schedule and I was busy like everyone else. And I was like, a whole day? Are you serious? And we had a couple different options of going to this presentation. And so I didn't go for the first, the first option I didn't go because I wanted to know if it was any good. And so actually the first words that Bob Edwards ever heard me say 
I had no idea like who I was. It was just a person standing somewhere. And, and I was asking one of my coworkers, Hey, was that training that you had to go to today? Was it any good? That's the first thing that he heard. And they said, yeah, yeah, it was good. You should go. And I went and it was, I think the first time that, that people were putting words to a thought process that I'd been trying to use, but I didn't know that there was a group of people that thought that way. I didn't even know that there were words to describe it well. And I think up until that moment in time, I had felt like I was very alone in my thought process. And now suddenly in that conversation, I learned that there were people that thought this way and I could, I could talk to them <laughs> and they could, they could teach me what they know. So, yeah. I, I, for me, for me, listening to Todd, it crystallized, I, that, that's the best way I can say, it crystallized the ideas that I already had been living previously and it, yeah, it gave them voice and you're right. It, 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 it enables us to not see ourselves as the island in the sea where anyone's thinking these ideas but creates a community of like-minded individuals which is good all right enough about me okay is the regulatory environment regarding safety in the u.s effective just your i mean that's a loaded question i would say that the any sort of regulatory environment is incredibly difficult to know how to write regulation in a way that's going to be helpful. I What I would say in general is that any type of regulation for large groups of people becomes incredibly difficult to know how to do because it, it is, it's really hard to write something that is adaptive enough or can be adaptive enough to apply to all the many, many thousands, millions of different circumstances in which somebody is supposed to apply something. So it effective i mean effective in which sense so i mean there's so many i have so many follow-up questions to that question i think that there's absolutely room for improvement everywhere regulatory wise but also i want to give credit to the fact that that is an incredibly difficult task i have been asked in some places to advise on how to write regulatory requirements and i can't wrap my head around how you do it because it feels as though it is an impossible task period yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let me let me pose it it's this this way. Are the fatality rates in the US actually falling? I couldn't tell you. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah, I couldn't tell you. Meaning like it, it, it metrics are so hard to know what's behind the metrics. So a metric without without context is incredibly difficult. So you can see numbers, but there's also many reasons why those numbers look the way they do. It depends upon whether or not we have accurate reporting of things. It depends upon how those numbers are rolled up and what buckets they're put in. It depends upon who's actually like so I, I yeah, without without being with a bunch of people going, looking, having eyes on information, understanding a ton of contextual information about how even we are rolling up numbers and what that looks like. I have no idea. Do you, do you think that hop principles can help manage psychosocial hazards in the workplace? Tell me more about that question. Okay. Psychosocial hazards, mental health, things like stress, fatigue bullying and harassment harassment of any sort things like that do you think that hot principles and hot learning could actually help better control those issues i mean i think it would be dependent upon whether those issues are things that are being created as part of the work environment so so whether or not we're talking about physical hazard 
emotional trauma, stress, any sort of any sort of outcome that is being driven by the way that business is being run. Um, I think that hop can help at least, at least uncover those pieces, at least understand the reality, understand people's perspective as to why they feel they're in that position. It can absolutely reduce stress associated with people feeling as though they're in a parent child dynamic and that their voice isn't heard and that there isn't respect and that they don't have agency like that can help directly. And if so, if so, if those are the reasons that I am in a space of feeling an exorbitant amount of stress or an exorbitant amount of fatigue, then for sure, in terms of having the resourcing within an organization to address an individual's reasons, that's up to whether or not the organization has has the ability and the resourcing to do that could could theoretically sure but there has to be at least in, in some place a realism of what do we have control over what do we have time to to do what do we have time to address but work related yeah i would i would absolutely say i'd say that you, we see it all the time like in any sort of operational learning you end up talking about the emotional personal effect of how I'm acting, how I'm feeling, whether I'm stressed, whether I'm not stressed, whether I'm fatigued, whether I'm in a place where I feel valued, all of those pieces actually come out quite naturally in, in the candid conversation. And many of the solution sets we put in place at least help lessen some of it. Doesn't, doesn't make it go away, but helps lessen some of it. Did I answer the question? Yeah, 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 sort of. All right. <laughs> All right. I think we've run out of time. Andy and Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on again. I really do appreciate it, as do the listeners. Um, but for now, that's all we've got time for. But I do look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having us, Thanks, Tom. Tom. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Health and Safety Conversations with Tom Bourne. Until next time, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your week. Same bat time.